0: imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us with your help. Some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery.
1: You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, we're going Back to the Future to discuss the life and crimes of John DeLorean. I knew about the glorious time-traveling DeLorean car from the Back to the Future movies, But I didn't know anything about the megalomaniac who originated the DMC car brand until I tuned in to The Dollop episode number 347, all about John DeLorean. The Dollop is hosted by history buff Dave Anthony and comedian Gareth Reynolds. Each week, Dave relays a story of a notable person or event to Gareth who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. It's a wicked fun listen, especially great on road trips with friends. There are many episodes that are true crime adjacent, I have some other favorites for future episodes, but it's hard to beat the story of John DeLorean, especially because it contains a surprising amount of magic and folklore, including fairies. You won't see it coming, but trust me, we'll get there. Before we dive in, be sure to visit the TrueCrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. I have a bevy of wild photos of John DeLorean in various style eras. It's like a time machine of tacky fashion. Don't miss it. And without further ado, let's begin our wild ride in Motor City. John DeLorean was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1925. His mother, Catherine, was a Hungarian immigrant who worked at GE, and his father, Zachary, was from Romania and worked on the factory floor at Ford Motor Company. Little John's childhood was rough. His father was an erratic drunk who would frequently get into bar fights and beat his wife. Mother Catherine would gather Little John and her other children and flee to Los Angeles, California, to stay with her family when things got too rough at home in Michigan. Catherine eventually divorces Zachary DeLorean when John was 17 years old. Despite having a long career at four, John's father never rose up the ranks due to his poor English and alcohol problems. He eventually moves to a boarding house for drug addicts and becomes estranged from his children. John was determined to avoid repeating his father's mistakes. He worked hard in school and was eventually accepted into the prestigious Cass Technical High School, Unfortunately, his studies were interrupted when he was drafted into the Army during World War II. He completed his three years of service, did a little work as an insurance salesman, and then went back to school at the Chrysler Institute, where, get this, he's able to do paid work while getting his master's degree in automotive engineering. He gets a job right away at Chrysler, making what is equivalent of $130,000 in today's money john also attends night school at the university of michigan to get his mba and he marries his first wife elizabeth higgins then he hops over to packard motor company so at this point it's the early 1950s john delorean is just at the beginning of his storied automotive career and i gotta give him credit he is brilliant when it comes to cars Even though my last name is Ferrari, I know next to nothing about automotive mechanics, so all of his innovations sound double smart to me. Like when he made improvements to the Packard Ultramatic Automatic Transition Torque Converter and Dual Drive ranges. Wowza. Have no idea what any of that means, but sounds super great, man. He's a young rising star at Packard, and then he gets poached by GM in 1965, where he is tasked to help with their struggling Pontiac division. Pontiac was having a branding issue. At that time, they were known as the car for old fogies. They were producing just these big old boat-like cars that drove super smooth and comfortable but moved slower than a snail with a hangover. Young people were not buying Pontiacs, and they were the fastest-rising car-buying demo. And old people would buy a young person's car, but young people wouldn't buy an old person's car. Pontiac really needed to find a way to tap into that market and connect with the youths. But these old-timey GM execs had no clue what the next-gen wanted, and they couldn't rely on viral TikTok dance trends or beauty vloggers for SpawnCon. No, Pontiac needed young John DeLorean to save their dying brand. So John imagined his dream car based on his interests, drag racing and playing the saxophone. He wanted to swap out the cozy cruising experience for a fast, loud ride a.k.a. put some big-ass motors into small cars. He suggests taking the V8 motor from the behemoth full-size Pontiac Bonneville and putting it into the midsize, but frankly still kind of huge, Pontiac Tempest. The stuffy conservative higher-ups immediately poo-pooed this idea. They did not like racing culture, especially NASCAR, and they had a strict mandate against putting larger motors into smaller cars. There needed to be a precise weight-size ratio or it wouldn't make it past the concept phase into production. This is where we come to one of the first examples of what I like to call Johnny D loves a loophole. Any shape or size, he'd find a way to squeeze through. Hashtag whole goals. John DeLorean pulls a clever pit maneuver with the production of the 1964 Pontiac Tempest. He offers an aftermarket add-on option GTO package a.k.a. a larger motor for your car so you can turn it into the Pontiac Tempest Le Mans GTO. However, he was doing all of this aftermarket motor swapping without the higher-ups knowing about it. They didn't find out until he had sold over 5,000 GTOs. At that point, they were a hit. This was considered the birth of the muscle car. GM replicates this design with the Chevelle, Plymouth makes the Ooh Barracuda and Ford the Mustang. Much to GM's chagrin, they reward John DeLorean's backstabbing, rule breaking behavior by appointing him the head of the entire Pontiac division. He was the youngest division head in GM history. He's 40 years old at the time, but he really steers into his image as youth ambassador please please don't miss the visual aids for this time period of john's life i have a photo of him doing a bench press in belted jeans sporting a gold chain with no shirt his chest hair pattern is a real feast or famine situation and this sideburns dear god the burns it burns i also think this is his post cosmetic plastic surgery era He got a new, larger, much more pronounced, sharp jawline. Let's just say things are severe up in here. John later claims in an article that he needed reconstructive surgery after suffering a car accident on a racetrack. But there were no records of him crashing on that track or even driving on the supposed day in question. A few years later, when his first wife Elizabeth is divorcing John DeLorean, citing cruelty... She produces some paperwork from John's cosmetic procedures in Sweden. John was really spreading his strange around Pontiac too with the tiger car campaigns. Joe Exotic would have been so proud. They wanted the GTO to be synonymous with a tiger. One print ad was a tiger skin rug draped over the hood of a GTO with the text, there's a live one under the hood. They also photographed some campaigns with real life tigers they'd lure a big cat into the front seat of a convertible with raw meat, or even use meat to trap it in the trunk and then snap a photo of a terrified tiger leaping out. (sighs) What could go wrong? The text read, How to tell a real tiger from a pussycat? Drive it. John also was the mastermind behind the campaigns of GTOs jumping over big gully ditches with the text, Get one before you're too old to understand. Okay, these ads seem nuts when you look at them now, but they were iconic at the time, selling thousands of Pontiacs and inspiring future big hat influencers like Tony the Tiger. Ugh, side note, did anyone else's mom make them mix cornflakes in with their frosted flakes to cut back on the sugar? They were grr tolerable. The older division heads at GM were not tolerating John DeLorean. There was a ton of infighting and competition for glory. The Pontiac Firebird was going head-to-head with the Chevy Corvette and Camaro. John DeLorean does some backdoor deals to design and release the Grand Prix ahead of the Chevy Monte Carlo. Car culture and new car releases were huge news at the time, but again, I'm not a car person. I would have been grabbing the latest Inquirer from the newsstand instead of Sports Car Illustrated. But even in my late 60's gossip rag tabloid, I'd still be seeing salacious stories of John DeLorean and his many affairs. Back then, car execs were well known by name in the American public. Many were considered celebrities in their own right. John DeLorean especially was a media darling. He would take frequent trips to LA and rub elbows with other celebs like Sammy Davis Jr. and Johnny Carson. He was also seen canoodling with Raquel Welch, getting down with Murphy Brown's Candace Bergen, and also walking in boots with Nancy Sinatra. There's even a story of John tossing a tube of lipstick to the manager on the manufacturing floor at Pontiac saying Nancy wants a Firebird in that color to match her favorite lipstick. Despite being a controversial presence at GM, the numbers didn't lie pontiac was outperforming the other divisions under john delorean in 1969 he was promoted to head of the chevrolet division he also marries a hot california blonde 23 years his junior named kelly Harmon. he hires the robert mitchell boys choir to sing an original song that john delorean wrote about kelly They adopt a little boy and enjoy the California nightlife when they can. But eventually, Kelly gets sick of living full-time in Detroit and divorces John. Another messy divorce between John DeLorean and GM was on the horizon. Before John was the division head, Chevy was a mess with quality control issues and disorganization. Then John swoops in, redesigns cars, streamlines production, and sales increased exponentially under his reign. But then GM wanted to release the Vega under Chevy. DeLorean insisted this be the highest quality car ever built by Chevy. But GM was looking to cut costs. They took over the assembly side. The execs lay off over 800 workers, and in response, the guys on the floor rebelled, intentionally slowing down production, leaving off parts of the car or intentionally installing parts incorrectly, producing a fleet of practically undrivable Chevy Vegas. They were a far cry from John's stated mission. GM sounded like a very dysfunctional family. After a long delay, including a one-month production strike, Chevy successfully releases the Vega, and John DeLorean gets promoted to VP of GM. But he's feeling real hot under the collar, of which he has unbuttoned far too low, needlessly exposing his funky chest hair. Then comes the infamous Greenbrier presentation. It's supposed to be a super private meeting at the Greenbrier Hotel, with John DeLorean slated to give a speech for the other 700 GM executives. John goes off on them, like a tiger getting its eyebrows waxed. He rants and raves about the poor quality production and how this cost-cutting, corner-cutting trend will be the downfall of GM. Weird, did John DeLorean have a time machine to somehow see into the future? The execs were not pleased with his hypercritical speech and insisted he tone down his rhetoric. Instead, a copy of his speech gets leaked to the press. It was totally John who leaked it. And John DeLorean is out of GM. Depending on who you ask, he was either fired or he quit. But the public champions this outspoken maverick, especially since he pushed for smaller cars right before the big oil embargo. The press wrote tons of articles about the visionary car man who fired GM. He comes out smelling like roses. But there are a few folks out there who are starting to think that DeLorean's roses really smell like poo-poo. John DeLorean was gifted a Cadillac franchise by GM as a retirement gift. He also becomes a silent partner at a car dealership with a guy named Gerald Dollinger in Wichita, Kansas. Dollinger is pumped about his new secret celebrity business partner until he gets a look at his bank statement. DeLorean is borrowing tons of money against the business in order to fund his groovy lifestyle. Dollinger is eventually forced to walk away penniless. He later says of John DeLorean, He uses the mystique to put the deal together, and then he puts the rape in. The guy is a demon underneath. End quote. John DeLorean started to plan his next career move. But first, he needs a new lady. He meets his third wife, model Christina Ferrer, in the most adorable way. While on a long-haul flight, he sees her photo in a Vogue magazine, rips out the page, and tracks her down. Wait, is adorable the right word? Christina agrees to go on a lunch date with John, who is 25 years her senior. They fall in love, get married, and pose for lots of photos where she looks great and he looks tacky. But there is trouble in paradise. Christina is having difficulty conceiving a child. So where does a wealthy 1970s couple go for fertility treatment? To a palm reader named Sonia, of course. Buckle up, it's about to get real witchy. According to John DeLorean, the mystical palm reader Sonia put a glass of water under wife Christina's chair. Then that water turned into blood, which meant that Christina would soon become pregnant. Oh my god, John's just getting real weird with it, man. I'm kind of here for it. And wait, wait, what if Sonia puts a glass of orange Fanta under the chair? Maybe your wife gives birth to tiger cubs? Huh? Huh? It sounds super wacky, but Christina eventually does become pregnant, giving birth to a baby girl. And Sonia the palm reader would be John DeLorean's most trusted advisor on his next grand automotive opus. Yeah, we've arrived at the birth of DMC, the DeLorean Motor Company. John begins this next venture with a lot of goodwill out there from the public who saw him stick his neck out for the mission of building high-quality cars at GM. His first DMC prototype seemed promising. A two-seater sports car with a stainless steel body, gull-wing doors, and a V6 engine. Sweet. Now he's ready to put these babies into production. He can't get the money from a traditional bank for his startup because only one out of every gazillion car companies makes it. So he asks his many celebrity friends to be investors, including Sammy Davis Jr. and the host of Hee Haw, Roy Clark. DeLorean can go practically anywhere he wants to manufacture. The world is his oyster cracker. He almost chooses the tropical paradise of Puerto Rico, but instead he plans to break ground on his manufacturing plant in the middle of a war zone. Yes, John chooses to set up shop in Dunmary, just outside of Belfast in Northern Ireland in 1973, which I'm not sure if you heard, but it wasn't the most peaceful time in Ireland. One side of the town was Catholic, the other side was Protestant. There was constant violence. And at first, I had zero clue why he chose this location. I kind of thought Sonya the palm reader put him up to it. But it turns out old loophole Johnny D was asking for government tax breaks to set up his car manufacturing plant. Unemployment in Dunbury was super high in Ireland during this time. The only people really hiring were the IRA. So the UK government incentivized John DeLorean to set up shop in this area to the tune of $150 million. At the start of construction on the factory, there was a huge delay because on the land that John purchased in Dunmurry there was a hawthorn tree. And one thing both Catholic and Protestant locals could agree on was that you don't cut down a hawthorn tree. Why? Because it's home to fairies and they bring you terrible bad luck if you chop it down. I love picturing these burly Irish blokes running bulldozers, all cowering at the idea of doing anything that would upset the fairies. Oh no, not the fairy tree, anything but that. According to Irish folklore, if you cut down a hawthorn tree, you will lose a limb and be cursed for life. John DeLorean cut down the hawthorn tree. He completes construction on the car manufacturing plant, uh, but he has to build separate entrances for Protestant and Catholic workers and keep them sequestered on the floor. He partners with Renault for the motor design and manufacturing and with Lotus for the chassis design and bodywork. However, his manufacturing partners start to notice a lack of payment for their services. We'll put a pin in that for now because it's time to celebrate Christmas with a 1980s American Express catalog. DMC has manufactured a very limited edition, I'm talking only 100 DeLoreans that are plated with 24-karat gold. And you can purchase the coveted gold-plated DeLorean from the American Express catalog for only $85,000. That's about the equivalent of $200,000 in today's money. DeLorean was expecting to sell out of stock immediately. But instead, only four gold-plated DeLoreans were purchased in total. Bah humbug. Things aren't going great in Ireland. Manufacturing keeps being delayed because, you know, war zone. John doesn't even feel safe sleeping there. He frequently flies many nights to a flat in London. And he even requests a bulletproof trench coat. But finally, in 1981, nearly a decade after he started the company, the first line of DeLoreans are ready for consumers. They sell okay. John didn't quite deliver on his many promises. The DeLorean cars do look awesome with those gull-wing doors and the stainless steel bodies, but the car is wicked heavy and slow and it doesn't handle well and it's also bad on fuel efficiency and it has a major flaw with the battery and it's also super expensive but they do look really cool when you're sitting inside one parked which is a good thing because at a car show a guy got stuck in one for over three hours and needed to call the fire department to extract him that brings me to the money John was spending jacuzzi loads on servants, cars vacations, properties and of course palm readings from Sonia DMC gets audited by the accounting company, Arthur Anderson, but shocker, they don't find anything unfair or inaccurate with the books. They go on to do more excellent accounting work for Enron, and no, I am not kidding. But then Margaret Thatcher comes to power, and old Mags Thatch is shutting off the tap to much of the government's spending, especially any money being poured into Ireland. Now DMC is really running out of money. It's an all-out drag race for DeLorean to take his company public and shield DMC from bankruptcy. But then John DeLorean's disgruntled secretary steals a bunch of records and whistleblows to the press about the company's out-of-control spending, including producing receipts for their gold bathroom faucets purchased from Harard. But just before News of the World is about to run a scathing story, Rupert Murdoch kills the report because he and John live in the same building. That was a close one. But things still fall through when he tries to take the DeLorean Motor Company public. Then old Max Thatch has her own auditor look into DMC. John is in a real tight spot. He's getting more and more stressed, paranoid, taking heavy-duty painkillers and sleeping pills. The company is on life support. But lucky for him, there's a group of, quote, investors coming to his rescue. A mysterious man named James Hoffman, who let's just say has connections. Spoiler alert, it's cocaine. James Hoffman guides John DeLorean through a deal, suggesting John can use his company as leverage to borrow money from Hoffman's banker and buy cocaine at wholesale prices to sell for a profit, funding his business and saving it from insolvency. John meets with Hoffman a few times but he keeps refusing the deal until he later claims Hoffman threatened the life of his daughter. Finally, John DeLorean gives in. He meets Hoffman, the banker, and the cocaine dealers at a hotel, accepts a suitcase full of cocaine, proclaiming it's, quote, better than gold, then clinks champagne glasses with his fellow business impresarios, and he toasts, quote, a lot of success for everyone. These are his exact words. I know this because it's all on tape. The whole thing from start to finish was an FBI sting operation. James Hoffman was a shady drug smuggler turned FBI informant who basically receives commission for his help to set up and take down criminals. Hoffman later admits he saw DeLorean in a media appearance, saying he needed $17 million to save his company, and he figured DeLorean would be an easy, desperate mark. John leaves the hotel with his briefcase of cocaine, and he's immediately arrested. It was a media-feeding frenzy. A judge refuses to let the videotapes be released to the press out of fear it would prejudice any potential jurors. However, Larry Flint, of all people, that guy who founded Hustler magazine, he somehow gets a hold of the tapes and sells them to 60 Minutes. America sees John holding the suitcase of Coke and cheersing with his phony co-conspirators. Also wicked weird Larry Flint detour. Dirty Larry also claimed to have an audio recording of Hoffman threatening DeLorean. He played it for the press, but the tape was inaudible. He then gets subpoenaed, and Flint was compelled to disclose the name of the person who made the recording of Hoffman threatening DeLorean. Flint shows up to court, donning a military helmet, a bulletproof vest pinned with a purple heart, and wearing the American flag like a diaper. What a freaking psycho. Flint later admits the audio tape was a forgery. Back to John DeLorean, the jury sides with him on all counts, they felt like this was a clear case of entrapment. He later gets sued by some of his original investors and manufacturing partners, but again, he somehow is found not guilty. In 1984, DMC is officially dissolved and liquidated with around 9,000 DeLorean cars being made in total. But instead of going down in history as a failure, the DeLorean car becomes an icon when it is featured in the 1985 blockbuster film Back to the Future. Although there were some aftermarket add-ons made to the car, including the flux capacitor that requires plutonium to meet its required 1.21 gigawatts of energy so you can maintain a speed of 88 miles per hour. Ooh, we're steering into nerd alert territory. Sorry about that, folks. To this day, there are DeLorean, Back to the Future conventions, meetups, and collectors. The DeLorean car has cemented itself as an emblem of the 1980s. As for John, shortly after his acquittal, his third wife, Christina, left him. He briefly started a watch company calling them Time Machines, modeled and styled after the DeLorean car, but time wasn't on his side and the watch company failed. He lays relatively low for the rest of his life, living his final decade off of Social Security in a one-room apartment with his fourth wife before dying from a stroke in 2005 at the age of 80. Sonia the Palm Reader saw the whole thing coming. So did the fairies. Yeah, we did that. John DeLorean, baby. Hate the play, I love a game. He was a shady, wacky dude, but man, some wicked fun ideas. I don't care that the DeLorean was a jalopy. I love the look of it, and I want to get one. And I've been doing some research on the internet... They do make kits that you can turn into a real-life time machine. So I'm looking for investors. And if I don't meet my goal to create a DeLorean time machine, I have a hot tub as a backup. Because if we learned anything from this story, it's that you got to believe in something. Fairies, palm readings, the value of gold-plated cars, working out in belted jeans with no shirt on. The point is, follow your dreams, even if they're kind of dumb. Tell me your thoughts about today's episode. What'd you think of a loophole Johnny D? You can email me directly at Angela at the true crime .com or join the true crime feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow true crime feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. and we're back before we begin the official ranking i am still listening to the coco Bertheman story and betrayal on the bayou both still excellent listens but they did get pushed off my top three by some killer top tier podcasts so without further ado here are the three shows currently trending that i think are worth a listen i present to you this week's podcast power ranking Mm. At the number three spot, we have Over My Dead Body, Gone Hunting. Here's a synopsis. When Mike Williams vanishes on a hunting trip, the authorities presume he was eaten by alligators. But one woman begins to suspect the true predators may lurk much closer to home. It sets her on a tireless crusade to uncover what really happened to Mike. A story about an obsessive love affair, a scandalous secret, and a mother's battle for justice. This is the fourth season of Over My Dead Body, and they have the formula nailed down. They choose very compelling stories and deliver the goods from start to finish. Also notably, this is the second Over My Dead Body case to take place in Tallahassee, Florida. It may just be a coincidence, but if this trend continues, I can see Tallahassee being the destination for disgruntled spouses to bring their partners on, quote, romantic getaways just after taking out a six-figure life insurance policy. You want to avoid that situation at all costs, Tallahassee, but don't avoid tuning in to Over My Dead Body Gone Hunting. At the number two spot, we have The Girlfriends. Here's a summary of the show. It's 1995, and Carol Fisher is a high-flying divorcee looking for love in Las Vegas. It's slim pickings in the medical community she works in, but then Bob comes to town. Bob Bierenbaum is a plastic surgeon who flies planes and speaks several languages. Her mom loves that he's Jewish, but there's something off about him. He's perfect on paper, but he's quick to anger, and he never talks about his ex-wife, who it turns out is missing and presumed dead. In this riveting nine-part series, Carol Fisher uncovers the truth of Gail Katz's death, the systems that failed her, and all of the girlfriends that brought her to justice. I know, I know, shocker to see this one at the number two spot after it's been reigning supreme at number one for so long. It is still an excellent show. Bob goes to court, and we hear from the judge and prosecutors on the case And knowing that all of this happened 20 years ago, the urgency is a little bit lost, but they do tease an update for the final episode that I can't wait to hear. The Girlfriends continues to deliver, but they were replaced at the number one spot with a story that I want to shout about from the rooftops. So this week at number one, we have search engine and PJ votes two part coverage on why drug dealers are putting fentanyl in everything. Here's a little bit about what you'll hear in part one, PJ vote and reporter Ben Westoff help us understand how fentanyl became a street drug in the first place. Westoff shares recordings that he taped in a Chinese fentanyl lab and explains why some dealers might want to poison their own customers with the drug. Then in part two, PJ interviews Lewis a former fentanyl dealer and user who tells us why a dealer might want to put fentanyl in less lethal drugs. And Lewis also tells us how he learned the rules of dealing, how those rules changed over his multi-decade career. This interview is absolutely incredible. And yes, I do usually only rank podcast series and not one-off episodes, but I made an exception because this is probably one of the most capital I important pieces I've heard in a long, long time, especially the interview with Lewis. I won't ever look at this issue the same again. You have to listen to it for yourself. So check out Search Engine's two-part coverage of why drug dealers are putting fentanyl in everything. Now for my miss of the week, we have the trial of Lucy Letby. Hosts Liz Hall and Caroline Cheatham go over details from the trial that has grabbed the attention of people all over the world. On each episode, we hear details that the jury has heard in the case against Lucy Letby, the nurse who is accused of the murder of seven babies and the attempted murder of 10 more in the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Lucy denies all charges. Yeah, it's a heavy one. And I've been putting off learning about this case because the subject matter is so sad and twisted. But the trial is huge in true crime news right now. So I wanted to get up to date. And I saw the show was trending on the charts. and I figured I'd give it a shot because long form reporting is my preference. But this is longer than a Catholic wedding mass. I go to jump in at the beginning and see that there are 52 episodes of this podcast. So at first I'm like, oh, there must be multiple seasons covering different cases. But no, all 52 episodes are just dedicated to the trial of Lucy Letby, And you're pretty much only getting details that the jury is privy to. There's very little outside info or speculation, Plus, you have to sit through a grueling three-minute intro every episode, plus long church piano music breaks. I recommend this show if you want to experience the slog of what it would be like sitting through hours of jury duty. But holy yawn fest, this one is not for me. I'm almost too tired to even reach the button and send the trial of Lucy Leppi down my podcast queue, Trap Door. Almost. <laughs> Find out next week who will be in the number one spot. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue, trapdoor. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed please share this episode with your car loving friends as well as true crime friends. I hope they get a kick out of it and be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple podcasts. It's a huge help to grow the show and I appreciate it so much. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feed.